Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Let's take a look at our top stories. Former President Trump's lawyers say they don't want to make disclosures about declassification related to the Mar-a-Lago documents. At least not yet. We'll tell you why. A Texas sheriff is investigating the illegal immigrant flights to Martha's Vineyard. He says he suspects criminal activity but didn't name any suspects. Governor Ron DeSantis responds. Five Senate seats might flip in the midterm elections. The results could determine which party controls the U.S. Senate. The environmental social governance strategy. What is it and what impact does it have on your money? We bring you expert analysis. Lawyers for former President Trump are pushing back against a proposal by the special master. They don't want to disclose which Mar-a-Lago documents Trump may have declassified, at least not yet. NTD's Jessica Beatty tells us why. Special Master Judge Raymond Deary has apparently asked Trump's team to submit information about declassification. Judge Deary was appointed last week to independently review documents seized from Mar-a-Lago. In a filing Monday, Trump's team said they do not want to give declassification information just yet, arguing it could put Trump at a disadvantage because that information would also be shared with the Justice Department. Trump's team argues they should not have to disclose that information until or unless they decide to fight the FBI search warrant or offer it as a defense following a potential indictment. Legal experts have said it may not matter whether the materials are classified or not, depending on what, if any, charges are filed. The DOJ also sent its own letter to Deary Monday, proposing that the documents be uploaded to an online platform hosted by a third party. That way, they argue Judge Deary could efficiently review the documents while allowing both Trump's legal team and prosecutors to evaluate them at the same time. Judge Deary will meet with both parties Tuesday afternoon. Meanwhile, fake documents have been struck from the Trump Mar-a-Lago search warrant case after the government disavowed them. The documents include a fake motion as well as phony warrants. They contained multiple errors. Despite that, they were still entered into the system. A top U.S. lawyer Monday said the filings were fake. Hours later, a judge struck the documents from the record. The fake documents may have been filed by an inmate from his prison cell. He filed identical paperwork in another case that was thrown out. He's been in custody for several years since he was found not competent to stand trial. According to court records, since being in custody, he's filed a range of lawsuits and has impersonated federal officials. Because of that, his mail is supposed to be checked. It's unclear how the fake documents ended up at the courthouse. Jessica Beatty, NTD News. Moving on to the controversy surrounding transporting people illegally in the U.S. An investigation is underway regarding the relocation of 50 illegal immigrants from Texas to Florida and ultimately to Martha's Vineyard. A Texas sheriff says he believes criminal activity was involved. On Monday, Texas Sheriff Javier Salazar opened an investigation into two flights of illegal immigrants sent to Martha's Vineyard by Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Our understanding is that a Venezuelan migrant uh, was paid a, a, what we would call a bird dog fee to recruit approximately 50 migrants from the area around a migrant resource center on San Pedro uh, here in San Antonio. The sheriff said somebody made false promises to the immigrants to make them stay in a hotel for a few days and then travel to Florida. At a certain point, they were shuttled to an airplane. 
where they were flown to Florida and then eventually flown to Martha's Vineyard, again, under false pretenses is the, the information that we have, that they were promised work, they were promised the solution to several of their problems. He added the immigrants were actually brought to the upscale Massachusetts island only for a photo op. The Bexar County Sheriff didn't mention what laws may have been broken. We do have the names of some suspects involved that we believe are persons of interest in this case at this point, but I won't be parting with those names. Uh, I think, to be, to be fair, I think everybody on this call knows who those names are already. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis's office responded with a statement that said the immigrants were given more options to succeed in Massachusetts. Immigrants have been more than willing to leave Bexar County after being abandoned, homeless, and left to fend for themselves. Florida gave them an opportunity to seek greener pastures in a sanctuary jurisdiction that offered greater resources for them, as we expected. Meanwhile, Texas Representative Beth Van Dyne said supporters of sanctuary cities should visit the southern border to see the negative sides of immigration. The stra travesty of little girls who are given condoms by their families before trekking on a journey into Mexico where they know that they're going to be raped repeatedly, where they've seen little girls and little boys who are basically owned by sex traffickers and sold into slavery once they get here or the travesty of knowing what it's like to be able to lose a son with the thousands of pounds of fentanyl that's coming over our borders. And the Democrat-run city of El Paso, Texas, reportedly has its own program for busing immigrants. The governor's office says the state is not involved in El Paso's busing. More on Florida, a state prosecutor who said he would not uphold abortion law will remain suspended. His case against the state moves toward trial. Until then, a federal judge denied Andrew Warren's request for his job back. Warren, a Democrat, was elected in 2016 and again in 2020. Governor DeSantis suspended the prosecutor after Warren signed letters of intent that he would not pursue criminal charges in certain cases. Those include ones against seekers or providers of abortion or gender transition, as well as lesser categories of crime. Warren sued the governor over his suspension, saying that his First Amendment rights were violated. The judge questioned attorneys from the state over whether Warren's statements would be protected speech or would warrant his removal from office. The state solicitor general told the judge, quote, Warren has no First Amendment right to say he's not going to do his job. The DeSantis administration says they are satisfied with the judge's decision. Warren contends he's fighting for democracy by defending himself in court. It's less than 50 days until the midterm elections on November 8th. They will determine whether Democrats maintain control of the House and Senate. And here are the five Senate seats that could flip. Among 35 Senate seats up for re-election this November, 14 are currently held by Democrats and 21 held by Republicans. Five of those seats could flip and ultimately determine which party gains control of the Senate. In Pennsylvania, Democrat John Fetterman will face off against Republican Mehmet Oz. They are vying to replace retiring Republican Senator Pat Toomey. While Fetterman decisively won his party's primary, Oz defeated his Republican rival by less than 1,000 votes after a recount in a tense primary. Polls still favor Fetterman, although the race is tightening. In Nevada, Trump-endorsed Republican Adam Laxalt will face off with incumbent Democratic Senator Catherine Cortez Masto. This is one of the nation's most watched Senate races, and polls have flip-flopped. An Emerson College poll released last week puts Laxalt ahead at 42 to 41 percent. And over in Wisconsin, incumbent Republican Senator Ron Johnson faces a challenge from Democrat Mandela Barnes. A Marquette Law School poll in August shows Johnson behind Barnes by seven points. But last week, their new survey puts Johnson at 49% and Barnes at 48%.
In Georgia, incumbent Democratic Senator Raphael Warnick faces off with Trump-endorsed Republican opponent Herschel Walker. The two men have agreed to a debate on October 14th in Savannah. Various polls in late August and early September show Walker leading over Warnock with 1 to 3 percentage points. And lastly, in Arizona, incumbent Democratic Senator Mark Kelly has a Trump-endorsed Republican challenger, Blake Masters. A poll released by the Trafalgar Group on Sunday shows Kelly at 46.6% and Masters at 45.4%. According to Ad Impact, Democrats have secured $39 million worth of spots between now and Election Day, while Republicans have spent $14 million. Many political pundits say the economy will play a significant role in midterm elections. Election Day is nearly upon us. Are you registered to vote? The fourth Tuesday of September is National Voter Registration Day. The National Association of Secretaries of State started the event in 2012. It's a coordinated effort from local, state, and national organizations to urge people to register to vote. Hundreds of thousands of people take part each year. Each state has different registration requirements. You can find out more about your area at vote.org. And speaking of elections, Texas organization True the Vote is restricted from accessing voting company Connect's computers. True the Vote was involved in making the 2000 Mules documentary about election fraud. A federal judge has temporarily restrained True the Vote and also ordered them to share how they tapped into Connect's network. Connect is also suing True the Vote. They allege the group's president and a board member committed computer fraud and defamed Connect's founder, Eugene Yu. Yu's attorney says True the Vote wants to capitalize on claims the 2020 election was stolen, including through the 2000 Mules documentary. The lawsuit also claims True the Vote attacked Yu with racism and xenophobia, partly by accusing Yu and Connect of being Chinese operatives. All of Connect's customer data is allegedly secure and stored on protected computers in the U.S., but the judge wrote that True the Vote was able to gain unauthorized access to get information from Connect's protected computers. Next, on to the buzzwords environmental social governance, or ESG. We explore this big issue that is becoming increasingly relevant and at the forefront. Our next guest is a leader at an independent nonprofit that works to understand policies that affect consumers and promote freedom. He breaks down how major investment firms that adopt ESG use your money to affect policies and they can't be voted out of office. Joining us now is Will Hild, the Executive Director of Consumers Research. Great speaking with you today, Will. Thanks for having me. According to trccompanies.com, with regards to ESG strategy, all businesses seek profits, but today's investors and shareholders want to see businesses making efforts to make the world a better place as they generate those profits. Is this a good thing, or are there hidden agendas there that can undermine overall prosperity? Absolutely. There are definitely hidden agendas here, although in some ways they're, they're very open about what they want to use corporate America and ESG to do. And that's namely to push their own political priorities. Firms like BlackRock and its CEO, Larry Fink, are very open about the fact that they are pushing progressive Democratic Party agenda items into corporate America. And they claim that this is going to increase profits. But the truth is that simply it's a political uh, activity. It has nothing to do with the bottom line. It certainly doesn't help consumers as these companies serve serve them. Okay, so you mentioned Democrats, people on the political spectrum on the opposite side. For example, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, he says ESG can be used to alter the constitutional process, which he says is unhealthy. He says if a top Wall Street bank colludes with each other and then they stop financing gun or border security companies, that changes policy outside of what lawmakers do. What's your reaction to this? 
It's a, it's a great point. And I think one of the things that's really important to remember here is a large portion of the funds that these firms are using to push ESG agenda are public funds. For example, uh, BlackRock is one of the biggest managers of pension funds, state, local, and federal. They manage about 80% of the federal thrift savings plan. So when they push a, a politics in the boardroom, they're using public money to do so, and they don't face an election. The electorate can't uh, kick them out. It can't tell them that they'd like them to do something else. So when they, they use public funds for their personal political project, it, it, it can really hurt. Well, what's the scope? Are, are we talking here, I mean, you know, billions, millions, trillions, what? Oh, my gosh, the scope is immense. So just BlackRock, for example, manages about $8.5 trillion. But if you add up the, the top three fund managers, State Street, Vanguard, and BlackRock, you're talking about about $22 trillion in funds. And again, none of it is that their own funds. This is you know state, local, federal pensions, but also institutional investors like, like you know state universities, endowments, and that kind of thing. So absolutely, this is an undermining of the entire democratic process because it's a way for a few Wall Street fat cats to push their personal politics without having to face the electorate. Well, let's look at this from what global management consulting firm McKinsey & Company says. They say ESG does the following. It facilitates top-line growth, reduces costs, minimizes regulatory and legal interventions, increases employee productivity, and optimizes investment and capital expenditures. For one, what does that mean? And two, what does that look like in practice? Well, that's a great question. You have to ask McKinsey because ESG does none of those things. So I don't know what that means because that is absolutely the opposite of what ESG does. ESG increases costs. It increases regulatory burden. It takes the focus of companies off of both not just making profits, but also takes them off of serving their customers. They should be trying to create the highest quality products for the lowest price for their consumers. And instead of that, they're chasing the politics of Wall Street fat cats that, that manage these funds. I'll take just one example. The, the E really just stands for targeting net zero carbon emissions by 2050. And the whole investment thesis behind ESG that this will somehow, a, a company that, that hits net zero by 2050 will somehow do better, is predicated on the bedrock assumption that fossil fuels will be phased out by 2050 by every major world government. Okay, So if that doesn't happen, this entire investment thesis is absurd. And in fact, it's, it's not going to happen. There's no indication that, that we're going to be able to do that. Fossil fuels make up 60% of electrical generation in this country. So it, it's an absurd assumption. And then they, they draw these conclusions that it's going to be so profitable for them to USG. But the assumptions underlying it are, are, just, are just nonsense. There is a lot to think about with this. Will Hill, the executive director of Consumers Research, pleasure speaking with you today. Thanks so much for having me. Coming up, Boston's Orange Line reopens after a 30-day shutdown. The Boston mayor rode one of the trains herself on the first day. And a pro-life rally in March took place in Pennsylvania's capital yesterday. Around 5,000 participants took part in the second annual March for Life. Stay tuned for more right here on NTD News. Thousands of Pennsylvania residents met in the state's capital of Harrisburg on Monday to take part in a pro-life rally. Participants of the March for Life gathered at the front steps of the state capitol building. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg has more on yesterday's event. It was the second annual Pennsylvania March for Life. There's such power in rallying the grassroots. An estimated 5,000 people were in attendance. It's important that babies have the opportunity to be born, that we stand up and show the pro-life politicians that uh, they have support, and to show the folks on the other side that, yes, we're praying for them, and hopefully one day they'll come around. 
with love, we go out to meet people one-on-one, -on -one, to encounter them and to help change their hearts and their minds so that they have an understanding of how important life truly is. It was the first march for the group since the Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. Roe v. Wade, first of all, didn't make abortion illegal in the country. It just allowed more freedom at the level of the states to enact good pro-life policies. So we're going to do that at the level of the states. But even more importantly, culture is upstream of politics, and we work to change hearts and minds. We work for that day when abortion is unthinkable. Many attendees said they are working toward a day when abortion will be unthinkable, and that there are resources out there to support potential parents. We're not judgmental. We're not, we don't condemn, we're not violent or loud or angry, but we're trying to let young women know, young couples, men and women, because men are victims too, that they, have, they can choose life and there's all kinds of help available because once they make that choice to take their own child's life, it stays with them forever. We cannot make these votes without you. Speakers addressed the crowds on the topic of abortion and shared their view on the importance of protecting unborn life. After the rally, participants marched around the Capitol. Politicians attending voiced their concerns and showed their support. I came here because life is so important and we need to stand up and defend life. Because if you have people in government that aren't willing to protect your life, they're not going to protect any of your rights or anything of yours. The March for Life in Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania currently allows abortion until 24 weeks of pregnancy. The uh, Supreme Court ruling is going to come back to the states for further, for further voting. I tell people to be very, very careful about the upcoming election. Know the candidates, know who you're voting for if you want to see Pennsylvania in the right place on life. State Senator Doug Mastriano, who is running for governor of Pennsylvania, says he will work to limit the procedure if elected. In Pennsylvania, 18% of our African American, our population is made up of uh, African American and Latinos, about 18% of our population. That population tragically makes up more than half of the abortions. This is a genocide. We need to choose life. Mastriano's opponent, Democrat Josh Shapiro, says he will veto any bills limiting abortion that pass his desk should he become governor. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. In other news, residents of Jackson, Mississippi are suing their own city and several engineering firms after a recent water crisis left thousands of people without running water. The suit alleges that Jackson's water supply has long been neglected, which ultimately led to it being completely shut down in late August. It says over 150,000 people in the city and about 30,000 more in the surrounding areas were without running water. The citizens want the city to repair the water systems and pay an unspecified amount of money for damages. The latest water crisis was triggered after one of the city's two main water treatment facilities failed following heavy rain and flooding. But the suit claims that even before this, the water supply wasn't fit for human consumption because of high levels of lead and other contaminants. The FDA has a warning for people and one the agency probably didn't expect to need to make. Don't cook chicken in NyQuil. It seems pretty obvious and not a very tasty option either, but a new social media challenge is encouraging young people to cook their poultry in NyQuil and other over-the-counter cough products. And this one is dangerous even if you don't eat the chicken. That's because the FDA says boiling medication can change its properties, making it more concentrated. Just breathing it in can damage your lungs. This isn't the only dangerous challenge involving over-the-counter meds. The FDA says teens have died during the Benadryl challenge, which includes taking a lot of the medications to hallucinate. 
An airline wants to slash commercial pilot hiring standards in half to address a pilot shortage, but federal regulators have soundly rejected the request. Regional airline Republic Airways asked the Federal Aviation Administration in April to allow graduates of its own academy to become co-pilots with 750 hours of flight experience. That's half of the 1,500 flight hours currently required of new pilots. The FAA said it denied the request after it determined the training program doesn't provide an equivalent level of safety as the 1,500 hours of flight experience does. Republic says it operates 1,000 daily flights for American Eagle, Delta Connection, and United Express. The Regional Airline Association supported the proposal. However, the Airline Pilots Association, which is the largest pilot union, strongly opposed it. And over in Boston, the city's Orange Line reopened Monday morning after being closed for a month. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu took the train personally and spoke about the reopening. As the speeds are coming back, as the reliability is coming back, there will be a little bit of a transition period, but we're headed in a great direction for uh, the Orange Line and for the system overall. The more people that are actually getting on our trains and leaving behind cars, the less traffic there is on the road for everyone. Even a little bit makes a big, big difference. Officials shut down the Orange Line last month so that crews could replace 14,000 feet of rail and nearly 3,500 feet of track. Workers also eliminated six slow zones and made repairs to the stations. The general manager of the Massachusetts Bay Transportation Authority says the Orange Line has been running so far so good. Wu said that she had a great ride on the Orange Line Monday morning and that it was pretty smooth. The Massachusetts Bay Transportation Authority says that they have completed their five years' worth of improvements. From transportation to the military, a Navy sailor is on trial for one of the military's worst non-combat ship disasters. Ryan Sawyer Mays is accused of setting on fire the amphibious assault ship USS Bonhomme Richard in 2020. The young sailor agreed to let a Navy judge decide whether he ignited the warship. His trial started Monday at Naval Base San Diego. Prosecutors allege that Mays set the ship on fire after growing angry over the duties assigned to him. They call it a mischievous act of defiance gone wrong. Meanwhile, Mays' defense counsel argues that there may not have been arson at all and that the military was scapegoating Mays for the mismanagement of senior officers. The sailor has denied any wrongdoing. The fire on the ship lasted nearly five days in July 2020. The ship was so badly damaged that it was deliberately sunk. On to another trial. This one concluded with a woman being sentenced to 18 months in prison for faking her own kidnapping in Northern California. The ordeal led to a three-week multi-state search before she resurfaced. The married mother of two, Sherry Papini, faked the kidnapping so that she could go back to a former boyfriend. She pleaded guilty last spring. Her bargain also requires her to pay more than $300,000 in restitution. The restitution is meant to pay state agencies back for psychiatric care, disability payments, and the cost to search for her and the non-existent kidnappers. Prosecutors wrote that Papini's kidnapping hoax was deliberate, well-planned, and sophisticated, and added that she was still falsely telling people she was kidnapped months after she pleaded guilty. The defense attorney said that in pursuit of a nonsensical fantasy, the married mother fled to a former boyfriend in Southern California, nearly 600 miles south of her home. Prosecutors asked to seek a milder sentence in exchange for Papini's guilty plea. Her sentence came down drastically from the maximum 25 years. A newly released cockpit video shows birds striking a military plane just before it crashed last September. 
Aviation experts say it appears the pilots had no way to prevent the crash. The bird strike caused them to lose the jet's single engine. The two pilots, a Navy instructor and a Marine student, safely ejected. The plane crashed in a Lake Worth, Texas neighborhood, damaging homes and injuring three people. Alaska Governor Mike Dunleavy says he's seeking a federal disaster declaration. That's after a brutal storm battered Alaska's west coast. The remnants of Typhoon Murbach began lashing those coastal communities Friday, bringing flooding powerful enough to upend buildings. A governor declared a disaster for impacted communities on Saturday, but says the state needs federal help. Damage assessments are now underway. Dunleavy will submit his request for federal assistance as soon as officials gather the necessary information. If approved, at least 75% of eligible disaster costs would be covered by FEMA. A powerful earthquake rocked western Mexico on Monday, killing at least one person. It happened on the anniversary of two devastating tremors. Power lines shook and parked cars moved. Residents of Mexico City rushed outdoors as a seismic alarm went off, warning of a powerful earthquake that struck the country's west coast. Officials say the 7.6 magnitude quake damaged buildings and knocked out power in some areas closer to the epicenter. And it all happened on September 19th. That's the same day that major quakes battered the country in 1985 and 2017. Many stood cradling pets on the city streets of Mexico City. Others clutched their phones, sending text messages or waiting for calls to go through. One woman said she was thankful she was prepared. Some areas in Mexico were still on high alert late Monday. A tsunami warning was issued for parts of Mexico's coast, with officials saying waves could reach 3 to 9 feet above the tide level. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. And still to come, the Pope says he's always ready to go to China. This as a controversial deal between Beijing and the Vatican is due for renewal. Find out more right here on NTD News. Welcome back. The Pope said he is always ready to go to China. This as a major deal between the Vatican and Beijing is up for renewal. NTD's Chenny Wu has more on that. Chinese leader Xi Jinping was in Kazakhstan last week, the same time as the Pope. When asked about a potential meeting with Xi, the Pope said he didn't have any news about this, but is always ready to go to China. In response, a spokesperson from China's foreign ministry said Beijing appreciates the Pope's goodwill, but noted there was no free time on Xi's schedule. Xi had traveled to Kazakhstan for a meeting with leaders there, while the Pope was there for a state visit. Meanwhile, a controversial deal between Beijing and the Vatican is due for renewal. A Vatican delegation recently traveled to China to discuss the deal and Holy See officials expect to extend it. The deal gives the Pope authority to appoint bishops in China. It also allows Chinese Catholics to recognize the Pope as the leader of the Universal Church. Prior to the deal, Beijing appointed bishops on its own. It also didn't allow Chinese Catholics to recognize Rome's authority. China is home to about 12 million Catholics. They're split into two groups, state-run and underground. Before the deal, state-run associations rejected the Pope's authority, while underground Catholics recognized it and have often faced persecution for it. 
But critics consider the Vatican's deal with Beijing a sellout to the communist regime. In 2020, then-Secretary of State Mike Pompeo called on the Vatican to abandon the deal. He said the human rights conditions for Christians in China got worse after it was signed. He cited an example of a Chinese Catholic who was beaten and taken into custody for refusing to join the state-run church. Fast forward to today, the Chinese Communist Party is tightening its grip on Catholic churches. In August, police raided house churches in several provinces, including Beijing. An expert says the Pope is in a difficult position when it comes to spreading religion in China. Operating a religion globally is that uh, the religion always has to be somewhat, uh, you know, has to, has to work with the state. And when you have a state like a totalitarian China, um, you have to work with them more than you have to work with them in a place that observes freedom of religion and um, where there's lots of civil society activity like in the democracies. Last month, a top political advisor in the Chinese Communist Party met with leadership from two state-sanctioned Catholic organizations. The advisor Wang Yang urged them to firmly uphold the Communist Party's leadership and push Catholicism to adapt to socialist society. Next, an unusual help wanted call. Official data from China shows the country is looking to hire over 3 million cybersecurity personnel within five years. But why exactly does Beijing need them? Here's a look. According to the latest data from the Ministry of Education, by 2027, China will have a shortage of over 3 million cybersecurity personnel. That's despite a nationwide yield of 30,000 cybersecurity graduates every year. Epoch Times columnist Wang He says the Chinese Communist regime needs an army of cybersecurity workers to steal cutting-edge technology from the West. The Chinese Communist Party uses them as a strategic force. Internally, they are used to ensure their corporate network security. And externally, they are used to carry out cyber attacks, steal intelligence, etc. Back in July 2021, the U.S., EU and U.K. jointly condemned the Chinese Communist Party for the first time. That's for conducting worldwide cyber attacks. The same day, the U.S. Department of Justice charged four Chinese nationals with participating in a hacking campaign led by the Chinese Ministry of State Security. Wang called China's cybersecurity arsenal a huge threat to the world. Coming up, a number of European Union countries are closing the door to Russian visitors, but disagreement over whether this is a good idea has split the bloc. And Russia seeks closer security ties with China. What should the U.S. do in response? An expert offers his perspective on this after the break. Four of the five European Union countries bordering Russia are turning away Russian tourists. They say Russians shouldn't travel while their country is at war with Ukraine. Poland, Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania imposed new restrictions while Finland decided to remain open. The issue of travel to the EU has split the bloc. Germany and France say that it would be counterproductive to ban ordinary Russians, a move advocated by Kyiv. Estonia's prime minister expressed frustration over the divisions within the EU, warning that many Russian travelers will now head for the Finnish border. 
The entry ban excludes Russian dissidents seeking refuge in the EU along with truck drivers, refugees, and permanent residents of EU countries, as well as those visiting family members. Turning now to Russian foreign policy and how that affects the U.S. and other countries around the world, this in light of Moscow's efforts to bolster relations with China. Our next guest is a China expert and former White House advisor who breaks this down for us. Joining us now is Stephen Yates, Senior Fellow and Chair of the China Policy Initiative. He previously served as President of Radio Free Asia and Deputy Assistant to Vice President Dick Cheney for National Security Affairs. Great having you on, Stephen. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. The Kremlin is seeking closer security ties with China. A Russian security official said strengthening strategic cooperation with Beijing is an unconditional priority. What can and should the U.S. do in response? Well, number one, this is part of a narrative that I think was amplified when Vladimir Putin visited China during the Olympics prior to the invasion of Ukraine. They talked about an unlimited friendship and partnership of sorts. And we've seen that play out a bit in a what I see as a transactional relationship between these two revisionist powers, uh, one where Russia seeks aid and support for its ongoing efforts against Ukraine, uh, and one where China seeks discounted access to fuel and other inputs to keep its economy floating. Uh, so I think that that is the basis of what they what they aim to do with the United States and the free world, I think, need to do is to think carefully about building the tools that will isolate the leaders of these countries who engage in outrageous behavior uh, while still leaving some room for those countries to move in a more enlightened direction uh, over time. Uh, but for now, with Russia's behavior against uh, the Ukraine, sanctions and other uh, penalties are on the menu, and China seeks to avoid those. Can you explain a little bit more about what this would look like, isolating these leaders while letting the general populace of these countries flourish? Well, I think in general, as we look at U.S.-China relations, which is by far the larger economic and strategic relationship than the role Russia plays in the world or with the United States, in the U.S.-China relationship uh, through COVID, through the stealing of intellectual property, through two parties in the United States identifying atrocities against the Uyghurs as genocide and the crushing of freedom of Hong Kong and the death of one country, two systems as a model there. Uh, and so I think we need to pursue a policy of strategic uh, decoupling. What that means is no strategic good should be an area where we are dependent on this larger business power. That's something that Europe needs to go through with regard to Russia and China, and it's something that the United States needs to go through, particularly with China, as we're much less dependent upon Russia than Europe is. Uh, but that is, I think, an area where there's some room to go forward in areas that might fill our grocery shelves or big box store shelves, but we can't be dependent on medical supplies. We cannot allow any advanced technology to have China as its dominant manufacturing platform. And uh, when it comes to energy, we need to aspire toward independence to have latitude. How can the U.S. continue to punish both of these countries while not pushing them closer into each other's arms? 
Well, in some ways, we can only do what we choose to do. We cannot control what their motivations are. If they seek to go in dangerous and revisionist directions, regardless of what our rationality might be, our only choice is how do we respond and mitigate against that damage. We don't get the luxury of being able to impose enlightenment upon their leaders uh, or good behavior. Uh, so we can have the inducements of if you want to play by the rules of free markets and free countries, then there is room for engagement, but not with the Communist Party of China, not with the leadership clique of Russia. It's going to need to be what we can have by way of accounting principles and transparency requirements of any other participant to be able to uh, engage with our markets and our consumers. Uh, that is a project that has been talked about for a long time, and it's our leaders in our markets that have failed to implement it. I think the political tides have turned to make it viable now. Thank you so much for your analysis. Stephen Yates, China Policy Initiative, great speaking with you today. My pleasure. Thank you. A flight commander died suddenly during a flight through Russia on Sunday. Authorities said he was feeling ill on the trip. The pilot was operating a Boeing jet flying between a southern Russian city and St. Petersburg. The co-pilot had to make an emergency landing at an airport in southern Russia. According to officials, the commander died before medical assistance was given. Investigations are underway into the cause of his death. Russian authorities haven't released further details. A similar incident occurred in August when a pilot collapsed on a flight from the UK to Turkey. Before that, two pilots from Ethiopian Airlines were suspended for falling asleep mid-flight. In the U.S., a growing number of pilots are also complaining of fatigue or stress. An expert warns that this could be a sign that the system is under duress. A Russian rocket is on the launch pad, ready to send a new crew to the International Space Station. The rocket is due to launch tomorrow in southern Kazakhstan. The launch is part of a July agreement between NASA and the Russian Space Agency. It allows Russian astronauts to ride on U.S.-built spacecraft in exchange for U.S. astronauts being able to ride on Russia's rocket. Despite tensions between the two countries over Ukraine, the U.S. and Russia have maintained their long-standing cooperation in operating the ISS. The station was created in part to improve relations between the two countries after the end of the Cold War space race. Washington issued a series of sanctions against Russia for its military incursion into eastern Ukraine, but none of them targeted Russia's space program. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. And still to come, in France, Heritage Days are held to appreciate French culture and art. Over the weekend, museums and historical sites welcomed visitors for free. Stay tuned for more in just a minute. Good to have you back with us. The European Court of Human Rights weighs in on a libel battle between the parents of a missing British toddler and a former Portuguese policeman. The ex-police officer was involved in the investigation into Madeleine McCann's disappearance. In a later book, he suggested that the youngster's parents were involved. 
The parents sued him for libel. In 2015, a Portuguese court ruled in their favor, ordering the ex-policeman to pay them damages. Two years later, the ruling was reversed by Portugal's highest court. The parents then appealed to the European High Court. That court has now ruled the book didn't contain libel. Madeleine McCann was three years old when she vanished from her bedroom. Early investigations by Portuguese police produced no major leads. For a while, detectives focused on the parents. Later, the police dropped their investigation, citing a lack of evidence, and cleared the parents of any involvement. The Heritage Days are a celebration of French culture and art. Over the weekend, thousands of museums, monuments, and historic buildings opened to the public for free. Entity's France correspondent, David Vives, takes us to two churches in Paris that both have a story to tell. This weekend, France marked the annual Heritage Days. It's a chance to rediscover French monuments, buildings and museums, including sites that are not usually open to the public. Many of them offer behind-the-scenes tours, workshops and other events. Paris Madeleine Church invites visitors to discover its ongoing restoration work and even to join in by helping to cut new stones which will replace the old ones. We identify the stones that are in bad condition. They are removed from the building and they are replaced by stones with the same properties. As soon as we work on the block, we have a number. We have a number on the block which identifies the location of the building. Napoleon in the 19th century had the Roman-style monument built as a memorial to honor the French army. It was later converted into a Catholic church. The Baroque church Val de Grasse was opened up to the public only for the Heritage Days. It is attached to a military university of medicine. Its director says it's one of the jewels of Paris. It's a 17th century church that used to be a royal abbey. It's very ornate and very pure in its architectural style. You could say that it's one of the prides of Paris or of Parisian architecture. Inside, Marcia Fioreto Bisch tells visitors about the story behind the church. It was built in the 17th century following what's known as the miracle birth of France's most famous king, Louis XIV. His mother, Queen Anne of Austria, wasn't able to give birth to a son. As the kingdom needed an heir to the throne, a monk had a dream in which the Virgin Mary appeared. He told the queen about it, and Anne made a vow to St. Mary, and called on the French people and religious orders to pray to Mary for 27 days, which they did. And by the end of this time, she discovered she was pregnant. It was miraculous because it happened after 23 years of marriage, as the queen and the king were married at 14. So the baby arrived when the queen was 37. So that means that a lot of prayers had to be made to achieve this result. The birth of the king was seen as a miracle and a gift from heaven. And so the church was consecrated to the Virgin Mary, with the story of her deification painted at the ceiling. And that's why the Queen initiated a religious congregation here and founded this abbey. They were Benedictine nuns who had to pray first day and night for the birth of the King and then pray to thank the Virgin Mary and God for the birth of this church. This is why the church features a nativity scene. The French culture minister declared the 39th Heritage Days a success, with more cultural sites participating. David Vives, NTD News, Paris. 
A Palestinian farmer discovered an ornate floor mosaic while planting an olive tree. The artwork dates back to the Byzantine era. The mosaic in the Gaza Strip, less than a kilometer from the often tense border with Israel, is in a perfect state of conservation. That's according to a French archaeologist whose team examined the finds. The farmer says he was digging in the ground when he discovered the tile work depicting colorful animals and birds. Specialists say that the mosaic is one of the most important archaeological treasures discovered in the Gaza Strip. And coming up, a cellist from Copenhagen sets herself a challenge to hand-carve a cello in 100 days. And a preview of this Friday's soccer game against Japan, the U.S. men's team is training in Europe to gear up for the coming World Cup. We'll have all that and more for you right here on NTD News. A 40-year-old concert cellist challenged herself to hand-carve a cello in 100 days. Not knowing whether it was possible or not, she gave it a go. Here are the results. The cello holds a special place in the heart of Copenhagen-based artist Ida Regals. Her grandmother played cello and met her grandfather in the youth orchestra. As a child, Ida would watch her sister's cello lessons. And I was just completely falling in love with the sound, the deep tone and the warmth. And I, I, I played her cello at home when I thought knew, nobody knew. Uh, I just wanted to try what I had heard, what I heard her doing in her lessons. And of course my parents knew it. And um, then I also got to have my own cello lessons. After becoming a concert cellist when she grew up, Ida visited music shop after music shop, searching for the perfect cello. After probably 10 years, I, I realized I might never find it. And then I thought, okay, but why not just make it myself? Then I can get everything the way I like it. With no idea whether she would finish, she set out to hand carve a cello in a hundred days. So I started working and I, I loved it. <laughs> Lack of carpentry experience didn't stop her. Only having completed two weeks of a course in Cambridge as a taster in making instruments, she learned through watching videos online and hard work. And I had a 15 kilo piece of wood that I started out with. And in the end you have 700 grams of curved wood, yes. So I had to remove 14 kilos with my hands. <laughs> Uh, and I got so many blisters and really sore arms and... <laughs> and that's not without challenges. Seeing slow progress, she had doubts if she could make her deadline. She took to Instagram to document her journey and progress each day. Slowly, a lot of people began to follow her hashtag 100 days of cello making. This inspired her further and made her deadline harder to escape. Ida worked from morning until evening during this time to hand carve the cello. She would even dream about it at night. She wished to design the cello to appear as if it was smiling. Struggling to find out which design she wanted, she reached out to her followers to decide. And then I realized, of course, those wonderful people were encouraging me to do my best. They also want to hear it, and they think it will play in 100 days. And she did it. By day 96, she completed the cello and was ready to test its sound. And what better place to try it out than her childhood home, the very spot where she played cello for the first time as a child. I was just really happy and uh, I felt like uh, falling in love because the sound was very much the way I hoped it was. If Ida's grandmother was still alive, she would have been very proud. I 
think she would have played it very beautifully. And I think she would have also enjoyed that this instrument actually, the shape of it is very much inspired by her cello, the cello that um, I also started playing on in the first place. She actually traveled for concerts by bicycle with her cello on her back. She said the longest trip she took was from Switzerland to Holland along the Rhine River, about 7,000 miles. She played 40 concerts along the way. And now on to some health news. If you suffer migraines, you'll know when one is coming. Then you'll dread the severity and duration. Will it be hours or days? Are there other therapies besides pharmaceuticals? Here's Gina Marie who brings us Strong Mind and Body. Migraine headaches affect more than 1 billion people worldwide. They are the second leading cause of disability resulting in huge loss of work hours. Severe pain accompanied by sensitivity to light and sound, nausea, vomiting and dizziness are the reason. There are numerous prescription medicines available for both prevention and treatment, but they don't work for everyone. Cost sometimes limits their use. Also, many can't tolerate their side effects. Lactating mothers or women during pregnancy avoid these medications. Let's look at some alternative solutions. Research showed that improved sleep, feeling better emotionally and getting your life in order are important for managing migraines. Let's start by looking at mindfulness, meditation and massage. Stress is a major trigger. An effective alternative is mindfulness meditation. Try focusing your attention on the present moment in a non-judgmental mindset. Studies show this reduces migraine pain and severity. If neck tension is the cause, try a massage. Next is acupuncture. Acupuncture can reduce the frequency and duration of migraines with benefits sustained after 20 weeks of treatment. It changes the metabolic activity in the thalamus, the region in the brain critical to pain perception. Next we have vitamins, supplements and nutraceuticals. Using food as medicine has fewer side effects than pharmaceuticals. Try magnesium, vitamin B2 or riboflavin and feverfew, a daisy-like plant. You can chew the leaves three times a day for prevention and relief. Given there's no side effects, try these alternative migraine treatments. That's all for today's program. We're really glad to have you with us. Please send us an email if you'd like to tell us something. We're going to put it on screen. For podcasters, that's news.today at ntd.com. I'm Kevin Hogan, NTD News, New York City.